chapter 11. Uh, we're picking up at verse 4 here tonight. Uh, I'm going to kind of give a little bit of a rewind because we didn't quite finish everything that I wanted to talk about in some of these verses in regards to the two witnesses, these two olive trees uh, and lampstands that stand before the God of the earth. Um, it says in verse 5, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Last week we kind of talked about this at their, their time of their prophecy or ministry is three and a half years. And it is during this three and a half years that there is no rain. Um, we talked about Moses and Elijah, at least in my mind, are the most probable people for the, uh, these two witnesses because of them appearing at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. We even see, though, when Jesus rises from the dead, there are two glowing in white um, angels or people that are there. Uh, there are always these two witnesses that are there. We talked about how uh, two witnesses, because uh, on the witness of two or three is where truth is found. And so those are just some of the things that we had talked about before. We also talked about Elijah when Ahab's men were coming to get him, called fire down from heaven to destroy them. And that's what is going on with this, so that the same messages, just like Elijah stopped it for raining for three and a half years, he does. Elijah you know, called fire down from heaven for the enemies, he does. Moses has all these plagues turning water to blood and so on. And that's what we see going on here as well. And so everything seems to kind of line up with those two. Now, Moses had all these plagues and Pharaoh did not listen. Seems to kind of be also a parallel here that while these plagues are going on, people are not listening. They're giving a message of repentance, but they just don't care. I think that in some ways we can just get a little glimpse of that in, in the last three years here in our country, that we have had many reasons to repent and very little repentance has gone on. And I think it's going to be much like that. Um, fire comes from the mouths of these two witnesses, maybe alluded to in Jeremiah. It says here in Jeremiah 5.14, Therefore this is what the Lord God Almighty says, Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth as fire in these people, the wood it consumes. Now, how literal is that versus the, just maybe literal more in the future, not this moment? But I do believe that the words that we give when we tell people to repent and they don't repent, there is going to be fire that will destroy them someday. And so there may be kind of a literal prophetic picture to that because I think maybe that's kind of really what Jeremiah is talking about. It is maybe not literal in the sense of what you're seeing all of a sudden people just poof in flames, but that someday they will be burning in the flames of hell because they refuse to repent. So um, I believe because of all of these comparisons, 
it is a very high probability that the plagues that are going to come upon here, it just says plagues as many as they want, will probably mimic what goes on in the Exodus story. Because God is like that. And the Exodus story is indeed a pattern of so much here uh, that we see in Scripture. Now, in Jude 1.9, we brought this up last week, but we didn't look at the verse. We talked about Moses being one of the people as well because of this verse. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Satan, for whatever reason, wanted Moses' body when he died. We don't see that in any other person in Scripture. There's something unique about Moses that even Satan was privy to. How? I don't know. This is a mystery. But nonetheless, we know that Satan wanted Moses' body. And for what reason? We don't know. But, um, like I said last week, Moses does get to go into the promised land. But not until Yeshua came. When Yeshua comes, Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he does get to go into the promised land. And um, I, I think in many cases that is what I'm often in awe of when I read about the Old Testament in Hebrews 11 by faith, how all of these men, they served, they didn't get to see the fruition of it in this lifetime, but they got to see the fruition of their faith in the end. And I think that's so much of what our life is like too. That we go through trials, we go through tribulations, but we got to keep just on the straight and narrow road because you will see the fruition of it in the end. You may not see it in this lifetime. And I tell people a lot that if all God does for me is die on the cross so that I might live with him for an eternity, but I have to live hell on earth, that should be enough. That we can go through depression, we can go through uh, physical ailments. Maybe you're paralyzed and you're confined to a wheelchair for the rest of your life. If we can keep in focus what Christ has done for us and serve the Lord through our trials and tribulations, let me tell you, you're going to see the promised land. You just have to be patient and wait. But that day is coming. And so... Hebrews 10.28 says, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so here you're going to have two witnesses coming and proclaiming the truth, I believe, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah that came. He did die for your sins. You need to repent of your sins or else you're going to perish. And those two witnesses saying that to them and them rejecting it is enough to die without mercy. Which means hell, ultimately. We could go and talk about a lot of different things in regards to, you know, the gospel being preached to the whole world until the Lord, you know, and then the Lord will come back. Um, people always say, well, what about, you know, this far off island and they've never heard about God and whatever. I don't know all the things outside of I believe that God, one way or another, 
is going to have a witness that declares his existence and who he is. Some people say that heaven and earth are two witnesses. Because we hear oftentimes as heaven and earth declare, heaven and earth are something, you know, put, lumped together. And we see that creation, even the message of creation, is a witness of God's existence. And today we have people rejecting him as creator, left and right, going, doing all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to explain why God doesn't exist, why creation is not true. And we even see a lot of churches who just don't feel creation is important, okay? because it's the gospel that's important. And so what you believe on creation doesn't really matter. They don't realize that they're, they're hand in hand which, if you know me, you, you understand that. But anyway, throughout history, there have been a lot of different views of who these two witnesses are. Moses has almost always been one of them, though. Uh, but sometimes it's been Elijah or Enoch are kind of interchanged for some of them. So, uh, or I should say, Elijah is usually the one for sure. Moses is the one that's kind of interchanged for either um, Enoch or others at times too. But you can see here, I'm not going to go through these, but uh, you can kind of see the way people viewed them in the past. And this isn't even exhaustive, but for the most part, you can see some people thought it was the two testaments, one for the new and one for the old, um, with John the Baptist. Another one, you know, thought Jeremiah and Elijah, you know, all these different reasons. But in all of my research, as I said last week, I cannot see how it's not Moses and Elijah, especially with them appearing. And as I said before, the law and the prophets. There are so many verses that talk about the law and the prophets being those te that testify against us. We can look at heaven and earth, but what I see Scripture clearly saying is the law and the prophets are enough of a witness that if you deny those, that there is a witness against you. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Righteousness does not come by the law. If you think you can get there by keeping the law, keeping the commandments, keeping the Sabbath, good luck. Because you can't. But if you understand the grace of God and what he has done, that is what the law and the prophets were pointing us to. And that is what we look to to understand Christ more. This last week uh, or two, it has been a huge controversy if you've been watching the chosen controversy going on. Very fascinating to see the trailer for it, if you haven't seen it, basically shows Yeshua standing there and the Pharisees are questioning him about the law of Moses and he says, I am the law of Moses. Well, I'm like, amen, because he is the law of Moses. He is the law. And the controversy has been that they say that this is a quote out of the Book of Mormon and so that the director of it is quoting the Book of Mormon and whatnot. Well, that's not entirely true. 
If you go look at the very verse that they're talking about in the Book of Mormon, it, Jesus declares himself to be the law, but it doesn't say the law of Moses. In my mind, what's the difference? It makes no difference. Jesus is the law. Even, uh, what's his name, wretched. Um, yes, Todd Friel. Uh, I watched something that, I know maybe Logan sent it to me, that was really good in regards to um, wretched kind of talking about, you know, getting up in arms about him being, calling himself the law, but yet in one of his own books he calls Christ the law. And so I think that in some cases that there's a lot of uh, choking on the gnats going on. But nonetheless, I believe 100%, regardless of the whole idea of the chosen, because Jesus is the word of God, and that the law was given by God to Moses. Moses didn't make up this law. And Jesus is God. Jesus is the law of Moses. This is why we see in Romans, when the Lord returns, Jesus is not just a lamb, he is a lion. God has placed all judgment in the hands of Jesus, in Yeshua. Jesus is going to be your judge when he comes back. How is he going to judge you? By the law. And how you measure up on that law. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. Not, did you keep the Sabbath? Did you not swear? Did you not drink? Did you, okay. But by, did you have a heart for the law knowing that Yeshua fulfilled it for you? Because you cannot fulfill it, but he did for you. And so he's not looking at your works to declare whether you are in or out. He's looking at your heart. And is Jesus there? And is Jesus Lord? I've said it before, but what an oxymoron it is for us to say, no, Lord. Lord is a master. You don't tell your master no. And when he tells you to do something, you say yes. Yes, Lord. No, Lord, just, that's an oxymoron. That, that's, that sounds like a democratic politician right there. Okay, things that just don't go together. So, yes, abortion and health care. What? I mean, it, that is a perfect example of that. Acts 24, 14, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. This is what Paul is saying. I believe everything written in the law and the prophets. Okay, Acts 28, 23, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law and Moses and the prophets. The law of Moses and the prophets. John 1, 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. You see, if you see the law as just a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, no wonder you think following the law is legalistic. You don't understand the law. But if you see the law as Christ, about Christ, then you don't see the law as legalism, you see it as a blessing. It's all how you define what the law is. And so for Christ, when they say, I am the law of Moses, I'm saying, amen. 
But yet there's so many who are up in arms because they don't want to put law and Christ together. That tells me you don't understand the law. You need to go back to kindergarten and we need to start at the foundation again of what the law is about. What are the prophets about? It isn't just about prophecy and trying to figure out what's going to happen at the end and what Russia is going to do. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus. And as soon as you take your eyes off of Jesus, I guarantee you legalism is going to creep in. Guarantee. Luke 24, 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning in the law of Moses, that would be things like Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy. Those are things about Jesus. So again, I prefer Moses and Elijah coming because these are the two witnesses that speak of Jesus. That's what this is about. Moses was the law, Elijah a prophet. And you've got both of them that are going to testify against the world when they come to preach. Well, verse 7, back in Revelation 11, says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So there's all kinds of ideas. What is this town that, you know, this Sodom and Egypt that's spiritual? Well, you can't really deny it's Jerusalem because it's where the Lord was crucified. And we even see that this is not unusual or new to call Jerusalem Sodom. We see at the bottom there in Jeremiah, it says that among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Here is, you know, the eye, or the city on which God's eye is never, you know, taken off of. And he calls it Sodom and Gomorrah there as well. Which tells me, Jerusalem, as I've said many times, is going to have a rough history ahead yet. It's not, uh, there's so many people who just, oh, well, you know, it's terrible here. We ought to move to Jerusalem. Uh, no. It's going to be bad there, too, because it needs a cleansing, as we talked about last week. Jerusalem needs to be cleansed before it can be holy and the Lord can come and set his foot down on or in it. It needs to be purified. So, Jerusalem seems to be the focus, then, of where these two witnesses are going to be. They are giving a testimony which is interesting word there. They're going to testify of the truth of God's word, maybe even of what he's done in their life. I don't know, but I guarantee you Christ is the center of it. We read in Daniel 7:21, and we're going to see it again in Revelation 13 too, but as I watched this horn, this Antichrist, was waging war against the saints and defeating them. 
This is where we get this idea of the three and a half years from Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, as we talked about last week. And it just so happens that that three and a half year period is now lining up with the same time period that this beast out of the bottomless pit comes from. Which raises the question, who is this beast out of the bottomless pit? When we get to Revelation 13, you're going to see that just as the Satan mimics everything, there is a triune uh, anti, well, evil. You've got the dragon, which is the anti-God, the devil. And the devil is going to have two minions under him. A beast that comes up out of the earth and a beast that comes up out of the sea. One of them is going to be an antichrist, and one of them is going to be an anti-Holy Spirit, or a false prophet, it's often called. And so, this evil trinity, I'm not sure which one this is. Is this the antichrist, or the false prophet? Because there's a beast that comes up out of the earth, that could be an abyss. But also, the abyss is used oftentimes as water, so could it be the beast that comes up out of the sea? So either the Antichrist or the false prophet here. I tend to think the Antichrist because of Daniel 7 here. When Daniel is saying this little horn wages war against the saints, you're going to see in this next chapter that that's what's going to happen. It seems the Antichrist goes after the saints and he is going to defeat them. But again, as we talked about last week, when is this three and a half period? If this is still chronological, we have been somehow taken, but it seems like we've been taken to Zion, but yet now Zion is this focus of the two witnesses. We've been talking about being protected in Zion, and now two witnesses being persecuted in Zion. I don't know. Okay, maybe this is not chronological. Maybe it is. All I see, the question that I have that I don't have an answer for is the commercial breaks. I don't see how you can not say that the, the churches, the seals, and the trumpets and the vials are not chronological. That seems to definitely be chronological. Well, if that's the case, which I believe it is, things are supposed to get faster and faster and faster. Remember we talked about that at the very beginning. Because when the first seal is opened, something happens. And the second seal, something happens. When the seventh seal is opened, all seven trumpets begin to take place. So the seven trumpets are all within the seventh seal. It seems that the seven seals all take place within the seventh church. And then the seventh trumpet, all seven vials are going to take place. So it's getting like birth pains, faster and faster, closer together. Well, if this is in a chronological time frame, and you've got three and a half years, regardless really of when it is, you've got three and a half years of these two witnesses prophesying. And this is taking place sometime during the trumpets in the chronological time frame. That means those seals could easily be a decade to get all of them done. 
that this isn't like a boom, boom, boom kind of thing. Because three and a half years is not a, a short period of time. And that's just with this little commercial break we're reading. Again, I don't know. Those are things that you just have to have in your mind and be watchful for. But I do believe that what we read in Revelation is not going to be happening in a year's time. I think it's going to be over a period of time. And that, as I mentioned two years ago, perhaps the white horse has been released. I don't know. But it still seems to be fitting. All that that would mean is that the Antichrist is at work. He's been given power. doesn't necessarily mean that he has been identified yet. But that he's at work. We see the powers that be in our world, in our country, really the world, that seem to still fall in line with what the Antichrist is going to do. So, I don't know, but it seems as well that the ability to kill these two witnesses, nobody else can. Fire comes out of their mouths. Plagues come on the earth. Nobody can kill these two witnesses. But along comes this guy, this beast out of the earth, and he can kill them. It seems that that is what gives this guy a following. And people are going to rejoice because, well, they rescue them from these two that have been annoying, you know, right-wing conservative Christians. So something is going on there that perhaps this is how he comes to power. Perhaps this is how his identification is going to be known. Prior to this, how do we know who the Antichrist is? We have people that are lawless. I mean, I could take almost any world leader today and point finger and say, could be the Antichrist. One of the identifying marks is going to be, he's going to be able to kill these two witnesses. Whatever that looks like. Okay, I... We haven't seen anything thus far that identifies or is able to identify who an Antichrist is going to be. You got his name, 666. Okay, but boy, we, we can put a lot of people into that. Um, you know, who is the, the Prince Charles fits into that right now. Uh, there's... You know, we, I've talked earlier about uh, Donald Trump and his, his uh, son-in-law. You know, they own that 666 building in New York City. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you look and there's this huge 666 on the top of the building. It's the address, and that's owned by Trump. So, so some have made that. By the way, I, I don't think he's the Antichrist, but I'm just saying that these are things. How are you really going to identify? These are all very subjective things. Being lawless, 666, um, you know, going and killing Christians. Man, I'll tell you, there's a list of those people that it could fit. But there's only one that's going to be able to do this. You're going to know when you see this. Whatever this looks like, I think that's when you're going to know. Now, 
that it might, I think he'll be on the scene that things have been happening, going on. But after this, things get ugly. Prior to this, maybe just a, a guy that's well-liked. I don't know. Verse 9, it says, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies, there being the two witnesses, three and a half days, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. A couple of things. First of all, these peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. Again, that phrase that we see is interesting. We saw it back in Revelation 7, where we saw the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, and then, right after that, he sees in heaven a great number of people, tribes, tongues, languages. Seems to be more almost Gentile-like. Now, question that I have for you would be this. If we are Jews, spiritually, because that's what God has made us by faith in Abraham, that we have the faith of Abraham, a Jew that does not accept Jesus, are they really Jews? Or are they Gentiles? Jesus' own words said, you, you know, you think you're children of Abraham. He says, you're not children of Abraham. You're a child of the devil. Your father is the devil. And so, on the flip side, Jews that don't believe in Jesus, are they really Jews? In God's eyes, probably not. You're a child of the devil. Not a child of mine. You're not, you're not, you know, a son of Abraham. That's what Jesus said. So, these peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, I think it's simply those that do not accept Yeshua as the Messiah. Clearly, they hate these two witnesses. Clearly, the two witnesses are on God's side, so clearly they're not good people. And they will not allow them to be buried. I don't know if you remember a few years back when there was a couple of American soldiers that were killed. I don't remember what country it was, but they were dragging their bodies through the streets. That's kind of what I picture here. They want to, I mean, it was exactly, they were celebrating as these soldiers were drugged through the streets, dead bodies, you know, to dishonor them. That's what they want to do here. And rather than being disgusted or, you know, I, I'm thankful that the spirit in me, I don't even care if it was one of the enemies that I have, somebody that hates me, that speaks evil against me. If, if they were dead, I would not want to see that. I would not find any rejoicing or merriment in my heart over even my enemies doing that. This is a hatred that is of the devil. And that's what's behind all of this. And they're hated simply because of the torment. And again, just like what happens today, 
they're tormented. Whose fault? The two witnesses. No, it's not. It's your fault. I mean, how many times as a child I remember blaming my parents for my trouble that I caused? Their fault, not mine. They won't take accountability. That's what's going on here. There is zero accountability. That's what repentance is, folks, is accountability. It's saying, listen, I have nobody to blame but myself. I'm the one that's at fault here. God, I am sorry. Help me. But they will not repent. Now, the whole world is looking on as this happens. Some people say that this is kind of one of the signs like that it would have been hard a hundred years ago for something like this to be fulfilled because how could the whole world watch on as these things take place? And you're going to see more of that as we move on here. With internet, TikTok, social media, whatever, satellites, this truly could happen to where the whole world can watch this. And that is something that prior, you know, maybe even 50 years ago was hard for people to understand how this could be fulfilled. It's not anymore. Um, it says in Psalm 79, verses 2 through 3, I didn't put it up here, but it says, They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. Things like this have happened in the past. I have always been fascinated with the story of Sennacherib. And I'm probably jumping on this a little early, but... Uh, Sennacherib comes and uh, surrounds Jerusalem. He, he conquers Lachish. He conquers all these other towns on the way to Jerusalem. Then he gets to Jerusalem and he locks up Hezekiah. And Hezekiah goes and prays to the Lord. The Lord that night kills 185,000 of the army. And they go away. I really believe that that is a prophetic picture, a prophetic historical event of end times. We're going to see that later when everybody marches up against Jerusalem and the Lord goes out and wipes them out. That story is not just told in, is it Kings or Chronicles, but it's also told again in Jeremiah, a prophetic book. The same story, and I think that's because that's what's happening. Jerusalem is still the center of all of this. And just kind of keep that in mind because it's going to come back as we move forward in the book of Revelation here. But as I said, Satan mimics everything God does. Uh, we saw uh, a similar custom in the book of Esther where when Haman, who which was an antichrist figure, was killed, the good guys send gifts and they rejoice. Now, 
I think that's a little different here, but nonetheless, Satan is going to say, oh yeah, I'm going to do that too. We're going to rejoice over the saints being killed here. So a, a very similar comparison there. These two witnesses, again, because they're preaching a doctrine of intolerance, a doctrine of repentance, does not go over well in a world of ungodliness. Just like today, standing up against homosexuality, against abortion, standing up for Jesus, standing up for creation is not received well by even the Christian church today or people who are in the Christian church today. So rather than repent, they become more angry, more insolent, and they look for someone to deliver them. When you become angry and all of this, and now somebody steps in like the Antichrist who's going to kill these men, it makes sense that they will blindly follow and get all excited about whatever he does. He could kill people in the streets of New York City and nobody would care. Right? What's that? Yep. Yep. So, I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting that it says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. I have no idea. This is just Brian Young's thinking. I'm not even saying this is what I believe. But it's just... It could just be on the earth. It's just the way he talks. That, that makes sense. But it also possibly, just possibly, could be making a distinction between those on earth and maybe the, those that are still being preserved up above. I don't know. This, Like I said, this is only a thought, so put a lot of question marks behind this. But remember I said that if we're taken to Jerusalem, the rapture takes place. Are we set down in Jerusalem or are we at Zion? We're caught up to the Lord in the clouds, but not necessarily taken to heaven. Is it possible? I don't know what that looks like. I don't understand it. I don't even know if that's right. I'm just seeing it's interesting that you know, the people that dwell on the earth rejoice. Are there people above the earth at that time? That's not necessarily heaven. I don't know, maybe. Verse 11 goes on. Now after the three and a half days of the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Kind of reminds me of Ezekiel's dry bones. Uh, is it Ezekiel 37? The valley of dry bones. Not, it, that's talking about something different. But I almost wonder if that's the kind of picture that you see. Somebody who has been laying there in the streets and beginning to decay, but yet their flesh starts to just be healed and they stand up. That would kind of cause fear to fall on people for sure. And... That's what's going on here. The world is filled with terror, not only because of this miraculous resurrection, but there's also a voice that comes up out of heaven that they're going to hear. 
Not the first time we've heard that either. If you recall when Yeshua was baptized in Matthew 4, he says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And we hear that people said that their voice had thundered. Right? So things like that seem to be going on. Does the whole world get to hear this? Do they get to hear it through TV and internet? Or is it just the people that are there in Jerusalem? Um, I don't know. It, but we see that people are scared. <coughs> Here it just says those that saw them. Uh, as in Christ's ascension, these two men go up in a cloud while their enemies gazed on. In Christ, it was the disciples gazing on. Here, it's the enemies gazing on as they rise up. But either way, I think it is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. Um, at Christ's death, we saw that there was an earthquake. Darkness loomed over the city. And even some of the dead that were in the tombs got out of their date graves and appeared to people in town. And that was a picture or a foreshadowing of the resurrection as I think the first fruit resurrection. And here we're going to see a great earthquake is going to take place as well at this resurrection. So just some parallels to look at. But the point is, it doesn't make these people go, oh boy, we were wrong. Instead, they're just going to hate all the more, follow the ungodly, because miracles do not produce faith. Miracles, I mean, I, no matter how much you want to see them and you think that it would make you believe, it will not make you believe. Just, it won't. Jesus even said that. So, when they ascend, they go up to heaven. What is this heaven? I don't know. I would say this, though. It is not the throne of God. The new Jerusalem does not come out of heaven yet. Remember, the Jews have three views of heaven. The heaven where the, star, or the birds fly, the heavens where the stars are, and the heavens where God's throne is at. That's why Paul says, I knew a man who was once caught up to the third heaven, the throne of God. Here they're ascended to heaven in a cloud. Going back to what I just mentioned before, is it possible that they're only going up maybe to the first or second? I, I don't know. But something to think about. Matthew 12, 39, talking about miracles not bringing faith. They said, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, I'm only going to give you one miracle, the resurrection of Yeshua. Not the resurrection of the witnesses. That's not the miraculous sign. Okay, I wonder if that's why it wasn't three days. To distinguish between Jonah, the prophecy, 
between Christ and the two witnesses. I don't know. Maybe in part. But it's not three days like it was with Yeshua. It's three and a half days here. Anyway, miracles, like I said, do not bring people to faith. Verse 13, just as at the resurrection of Jesus, it says, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So, like I said, the parallel of the earthquake is interesting. Um, knowing God exists and actually having a personal walk with him are two absolutely different things. You know, when we were doing a lot of street evangelism, I couldn't tell you how many times, and Julia, you can probably attest to this as well, how many times people will come up and tell me, well, well I pray. Well, well, I go to church. Nathan would go out on the streets with me all the time too, and I mean, he heard it constantly. And they thought that, well, I pray to God. I know, I know that God exists. I believe in God. And I countless times gave them James. Well, you know, the devil believes in God too, but he's not going to heaven. Right? It says in James that the devil believes in God and shudders. I'll tell you what, the devil believes in God more than most people in our society today, probably more than many people in the church today, and he's not getting there. Knowing who God is and saying, I believe in Jesus, does not get you to heaven. Having a personal relationship with him is what does. And I think that that's what's going on. I'll bet that a lot of these people in this city in Jerusalem believe in God. But they will not submit to the Lord of heaven and earth. They will not shout his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. Earlier in chapter 8, verse 13, we saw an angel warning us about the last three trumpets. He says, you know, the three woes to come. In chapter 9, verse 12, we saw the first woe. That was the locust that had the sting in their tails, the sting of scorpions. And then in the fifth trump, that was the fifth trumpet. The second woe came. That was the horsemen and their snake-like tails at the sixth trumpet. And now he's saying the second woe has passed. Again, the chronological support here. This is our commercial break. But in the same hour that these people are resurrected, there's an earthquake. And we see the message, the second woe is past. Which tells me these two witnesses have to be chronological after the trumpets at least the sixth trumpet. And he says, Behold, the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet, is coming quickly. To me, that is a very strong argument for a chronological order of this, which means this entire thing that we've been taught for years and years and years about the seven-year period being, you know, right there at the beginning of the seals or whatever, 
may not be the case that the seven-year period does not start until the trumpets. Because these witnesses are there for three and a half years. And then they die, and there's going to be another three and a half years where the Antichrist or whoever it is goes after the saints and will be able to defeat them. That might be good news for us. That might mean, possibly, you're not going to see the two witnesses. Even though I'm not a pre-trib rapture guy. You may not see the seven-year period. I guess it just depends on what you call the tribulation. Most people will attach that to the seals and the trumpet parts. But this doesn't... The only thing we have so far attaching a three-and-a-half-year period are the witnesses. So you're saying like the tribulation, as we called it, could be a really long period of time? Is that Not necessarily. I'm just, it's like I would say in general most Christians have always attached the tribulation to the seven-year period. But at the same time, they read the seals and they see that in the first trumpets, they see that as what's supposed to be happening in that seven-year period. I'm saying it might be separate. That you live through the seals, but then this other part is actually the tribulation. But those seals aren't the tribulation. What has been identified as by many. I don't know. But these are things that we have to, like I said, I just see chronological order completely. I think that chronological order is going to stop after chapter 11. And we'll talk about that. But so far, it seems very chronological. So, um, Ezekiel 38:19 says, In my zeal and fiery wrath, I will declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Now what's important is Ezekiel is saying here his fiery wrath. Remember, we will not be under the wrath of God. We talked about that at the end of the sixth seal because I said that the sixth seal seemed to be more God's or man's wrath on the saints or in the world. But the seventh trumpet, or the, the first trumpet, the seven trumpets seem to be more of God's wrath. And, again, it, it seems to me that at the end of the sixth trumpet, every time we see the sun and moon being darkened throughout Scripture, it says then that's when the Lord comes. But is there two comings in a sense? One where he doesn't come all the way down to earth and another, you know, then there's after the millennial reign. I just don't think it's a one-and-done kind of thing. There's too many things that are unknown. Okay, He's coming. He puts his foot on the sea and on the earth once. We see another time him coming with the new Jerusalem out of heaven. Um, Again, it all depends on how you define things. That's why I don't like being called a pre-trib or a post-trib or whatever because how do you define tribulation? I don't... I can't even put myself in one of these because I don't understand fully. All I know is that we've kind of packaged a nice little neat boom, boom, boom thing 
that we've sold to everybody, and I don't see it being that nice and neat when we really study the book of Revelation. So, maybe I'm wrong, but you guys are studying it with me. You have to come up and see what you think. But Verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded. So here's that last woe. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. One of my favorite verses of all Scripture right here. Because regardless of all of the not knowing, right now I can tell you this, it's over for you for sure. Yes. This is completely in line with Thessalonians and Corinthians. Now I used to say this to me was when the rapture took place. Maybe it is still. Not saying I was wrong. But... I see a problem here with all these things we've discussed before with the sun and moon being darkened. That always is the marker. That seems to be a biblical marker, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. This is long after that. But I was always hanging my hat on 1 Corinthians 15 and, and 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says here, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. You're not all going to die. Some people are going to make it until the time the Lord comes back. And when it does, you're going to be changed like that. At the last trumpet. Now, some people have said, well, what is the last trumpet? Could be a number of different things. All I know is the Bible talks about seven trumpets. And this being the last one. You can look at the feast and say, oh, you know, on the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets, they're blowing trumpets, is the last trumpet. Well, the Bible doesn't say that specifically. So I'm going to let the Scripture interpret the Scripture, and the only last trumpet I see, scripturally speaking in context, are these seven trumpets. And it just so happens that when I read the last trumpet of the seven trumpets, what happens? The kingdom of this world become the kingdom of God. He reigns forever and ever, and it goes on and it says the time to reward his saints has come. That sounds to me like what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 15. It goes on. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So notice the dead are going to be raised. Not everybody's going to sleep. You're going to be changed, boom. But also the dead are going to come up out of the ground, just like when Jesus rose, right? For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen. Awesome. Right? So many things going on in here. We've got to kind of break this up. But again, keep in mind, this is in our commercial break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet that we're reading about the two witnesses. Now comes the seventh trumpet, and it's over. Uh, the kingdom of this world is now the kingdom of God. Right now, this is not the kingdom of God. Right now, this is the kingdom of Satan. 
Right? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said in John? The prince of this world now stands condemned. Satan is still the prince of this world right now, today. That's why we have all the evils going on in the world today. The kingdom of this world does not become the kingdom of God till the seventh trumpet. Now, the people who are still living at the time, who are going to be changed in a flash, we have to wait a few seconds so, so, until we get to see. I'm kind of glad about that. You call me weird, but I'm kind of glad that we get to see the dead people coming out of their graves because they get to rise first before we get to ascend. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. So when we read here, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, the Lord also must be coming with that. Okay, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Remember where we just saw God calling the two witnesses? Where was God? Was he on earth? No. He says, come up here. And they rose to heaven. And now, right after that, God comes down from heaven, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. With a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, exactly where the two witnesses went, which makes me wonder, while the two witnesses are going up, do then all these other dead people and us get to go up with them? I don't know. Is that the resurrection? Because when this is happening, the seventh trumpet blows. At the seventh trumpet, this is what we're reading about, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Boy, that sure makes that boat or house that you guys are so concerned about right now mean nothing, right? Isaiah wrote about this in chapter 27, verse 12. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Matthew 24, 31, He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heavens to the other. You have pictures of Jericho. They're going into the promised land. Folks, heaven is our promised land. This is not it. And they march around the city seven times. And they're supposed to blow their trumpet seven times. And when do the walls come down so that they get to rush into the promised land? At the seventh trumpet. All of these picture. But... I guess, again, what I'm saying is this idea of living our lives and one day, boom, we're with the Lord, doesn't seem to be the way it is. It seems to be we're living our life, we're seeing a lot of weird things going on, a lot of stuff, <coughs> and it's a process. But one day, after the two woes of some pretty bad things, then, yes, where we are in the midst, I don't understand, I don't know, 
one day in a flash in the twinkling of an eye. But I can tell you it's not right now. It won't be in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> Too many things have to happen. It might. It might. Yeah. So notice that the kingdoms of this world have become. Uh, like I said, this world is still Satan's playground. And that's why we're warned in 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's New Testament, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, and the devil is still after you. Don't get too comfortable. Because I'll tell you what, you get too comfortable on this earth, and in this world, in the things of this world, he's coming after you. And he's going to use the things of this world to get your eyes off of your goal and your purpose. You know, this week I've spent a lot of time in prayer and throughout the last number of years, but especially this week again. Kind of fighting that devil a little bit because you know you get so many people who just, you know they don't like you. People within the church who think I'm crazy, nuts, because, you know, I, I'm either too grace-filled or too law-filled. That's the funny part to me. Yeah, no it is not. When I, when I say that we are not sinners, we are saints, that was the two grace filled. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. not grace full. That one I'm definitely not. Anyway, point being is I've spent a lot of time because of all of those things questioning, God, am I... God, do not let me lead people astray. God, do not let me ever do that. I, I pray, God, show me truth. If I am wrong, and the only way, and here's the, what I find praying to God is, God, I don't know how you can show me truth. I, mean, I got the Bible, but you know, I can pick up this Bible, and two people can look at the same exact verse and see two different things. People who study a lot. If an angel from heaven came, I don't know if I could trust them. I mean, I'd have to test them, but boy, would my test be good. Because I'll tell you what, there are, you know, deceiving spirits that are all around the Bible warns about. I can't trust my friends because they just agree with me. Right? How can we know truth? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. How can we find truth, though? And the answer that I always come back to is there's only one way, and that is the Word of God. And yes, people can see things differently in the Word, but I think the difference is this. Do we cherry-pick a verse to get our beliefs, or do we take the whole Bible and we let it speak for itself in context without contradiction? If you interpret the scripture somewhere and it creates a contradiction, there's something wrong with your understanding of scripture. And that may not be a foolproof answer, but it's one that I keep coming back to. 
And it's like, I am sold out on the truth of God's word. I am absolutely sold out and I cannot see it saying anything but and I see it being consistent from Genesis to Revelation. I can't see any other truth. And the devil wants to always plant those seeds of doubt. Brian, maybe maybe you need to, you know, settle down a little bit because you always seem to tick people off with standing up on truth. You know, it would be easy. It would be so much easier to just back off a little bit. I think that is an encouragement. I do see very spirit-led preachers, I think, generally are on the same, I mean, same path. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think that there is a testimony to that, to, to some extent, because it's the same spirit working through the same word, giving the same truth. But we have to be careful about that because you could say, look at the Mormons. You could say, uh, Islam, they have visions and people are getting the same kind of messages and the same. And so experiences, it's, it's got to come back to the word eventually. But I think that what we're saying is based on the word, not an experience, not a vision, not an apparition, but it's the word. But the devil is roaring around and he is seeking to devour by planting seeds of doubt in each and every one of our minds, I'm sure. And we need to watch that. Daniel 2 verse 44 says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is seventh trumpet talk here, right? Daniel 7, 14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the... The kingdom of God has you involved. That's kind of cool. The people of the Most High, the saints, His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey Him. Now what's fascinating is all rulers, I don't think necessarily are all Christians at this point. I don't understand this whole millennial reign aspect fully, but I do know that there are those that are going to be outside of Jerusalem that are going to basically not get any rain unless they come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? So maybe some of these rulers, the kingdom of God, hey, this is now my kingdom, and you don't get to have all your evil plots and plans and whatnot. I'm going to allow you, because it's my kingdom, to live out here, outside, you little peasants, but you only get to do what I tell you to do, you only get the rain that I'm going to give you, and you will obey. I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. 
All I know is it's God's at this point. And there are many verses referring to this glorious day as one that's going to be eternal, where the saints are ruling. Mount Zion is going to be the center of it all. And there are a number of those verses that we will look at next week to show you that. But this is where we're going to close for now. And so when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, I hope that you see it's much more than, oh, okay, good, I'm saved now, now let me go live my life. That Jesus has a bigger plan for you than just salvation. Sometimes salvation is just this kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of mentality that we have. It's just so foggy and undescript and just almost unrelated and unattached to real life. Guys, there's going to be real life. Your spirit, your thoughts, your life that you have goes with you to heaven. It's just going to look very different. It's not this disconnected reality. And so hopefully this is starting to put some of that together. We don't have all the answers, but it's more than just this fluffing on a cloud, you know, for the rest of eternity. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word and your truth. We just ask, Father, that your kingdom would come. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer so often, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that day, Lord. We ask that it would come quickly and that you would put an end to all this evil, that all rulers would obey you, and that we would be able to just be in your presence in in a new way that this mortal body would become immortal and that we would be able to understand fully. Until that day comes, O Lord, we just ask you to preserve us, to strengthen us, to give us uh, discernment and to keep us from having our feet wander off of the path, from our minds straying to the things of this world. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.